Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Jason Kane, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today I'm joined by Stephen Zeiger, Managing Director at KB Financial Partners, an expert in applying prudent investor guidelines to life insurance products collection and portfolio management. I've asked Stephen to join us today to chat about a variety of best in practice ideas he uses for insurance acquisition and how a change in the tax landscape might make these strategies even more attractive moving forward. Welcome, Stephen. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Jason. I look forward to our conversation. Well, uh, as do I. Well, why don't we uh, Why don't we jump into it? I've got a question I've been hearing uh, a decent amount about. It's uh, these fiduciary regulations uh, adopted by the state of New York and the Certified Financial Planning Board. Can you fill me in and fill our audience in? A little bit more about what those are? Sure. Um, so New York State implemented Regulation 187 on February 1st of 2020, and the CFP board also implemented their uh, fiduciary practice standard, and both of those uh, sort of regulations uh, use the same language as you know, other fiduciary requirements to use the care, skill, prudence, and diligence of a prudent person when selecting life insurance and making changes to life insurance. So this is really a, a brand new day for, um, for an industry. And uh, it's much better for clients and it's better for their attorney, family office, wealth management, EPA advisors. So tell me, what does it apply to? You mentioned uh, the purchase of insurance. Um, what about the review of existing policies? How, how does that uh, apply? How do these regulations apply? Sure. So the regulations apply to the purchase and the, and the changes to insurance policies, but they don't really apply to the, to the review process. Um, but Interestingly enough, um, there was a very interesting lawsuit uh, settled in the Indiana Appellate Court approximately 10 years ago. I wrote about it in Trust and States Magazine. And really what the saving grace was for trust company was that they went to an independent third party that had no financial stake in the outcome. So it's almost as if they went to Morningstar. And What's becoming uh, more popular um, in the in the marketplace is to use that same model when reviewing insurance, having an independent so, third party. So let's talk about that because all of this regulation uh, and your practice is focused on um, providing the purchaser with a higher level of transparency and, and um, comfort in the process. Um, talk about, explain to me that third party um, analysis and what goes on there and, and why you do it. Sure. So, you know, when I speak to attorneys or accountants or family offices or CPAs or trust companies, I usually start off by asking a question. And that question is, when your clients review their investments, that they have reviews 
independent research from Morningstar or Value Line or Ibbotson? And the answer unequivocally is, of course we do. They're household names. And when I ask them about their life insurance, they say, well, no, we have a, an insurance company or an insurance broker review the policies. And that's really two different models. Um, so what, what we've done is we've figured out how to use you know, Morningstar and Ibbotson and a company called Verilytic and a company called Vital Signs and a company called Ethical Edge. And all they do is sell pricing and performance research and they have no stake in the outcome and it enables clients to make much better decisions because the clients have much better empirical information at their hands. And I would imagine that that transparency gets uh, gets folks into a scenario where they feel much more comfortable through what has historically been um, kind of like getting your teeth pulled. Uh, in the industry, uh, and no disrespect to you or your firm or anybody in the industry, but I don't think people are lining up uh, uh, to acquire life insurance. So this model is trying to make uh, that process significantly more transparent and significantly uh, um, more uh, efficient for uh, for clients. I suspect. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. I'll give you a, a quick, maybe two quick stories. So I walked in, uh, an attorney introduced me to his client and I went to go meet the client and I walk up to him to shake his hand. And he said, I, I, I wouldn't shake an, an insurance agent's hand. I just don't trust you guys. And I said, you know, you're probably right. You shouldn't. And he said, that's interesting. Why do you say that? I said, well, what, what do you mean? What, what other people say? And he said, well, every other insurance agent that I've ever said that to, they can say, they say well, you can shake my hand, just don't shake anyone else's. <laughs> and, and you're the only one who's ever said, don't shake anyone's hand. He said, okay, you got me interested here. I said, look, let me explain this process. I, I don't have any illustrations with me. I don't have any Excel spreadsheets comparing policies that I you know, produced for you. What I have in front of me is, research that I've purchased from Verilytic, Morningstar, Ethical Edge. What I'm going to do is I'm gonna, I'll walk you through someone else's case study and you'll see exactly how to use this research. And when you're ready to view your information, just so you don't view me as a salesperson, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sit in your waiting room and look at your goldfish tank. And that's how easy the information is to look at because enables people to compare their insurance, not to one other policy or five other policies, but the same benchmarks that Jason, you're used to in, in the wealth management field where someone would compare their investments to the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500 index. The person gets to see exactly where they fall on a continuum in sort of the five areas of suitability regarding life insurance policies. So that's the first sort of story of how well people like this model because almost like I remember when I bought a diamond ring for my wife and you purchased one for your wife and the person started talking about color and color and clarity and I said, I'm, I'm going to have to go back to, you know, 
school and learn about this because I don't, I, I can't, I can't even trust the person. I don't know what these terms mean. And they presented me a, a, a rating from the Gemological Institute of America that explained exactly what the color was, exactly what the cut was, exactly what the quality was, et cetera. And that's the same thing that's available now, an independent third party's view of insurance, whether it's an existing policy or a policy that someone is looking to purchase. Um, and just another, go go. Go ahead. I, I uh, was going to ask or make one comment. It sounds like that this process, this independent third party process that you go through, uh, really allows clients and their advisors to compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges, which I have found over 25 years uh, on the periphery of the insurance industry as an advisor, uh, that that's the hardest thing to do. Uh, that's the hardest uh, process as you're going through uh, the decision-making uh, role is to figure out how to compare apples to apples. Correct. And this is exactly apples to apples. Essentially, if someone owns a general account product, which is full life or universal life or index life, they can compare their policy or illustration to patented benchmarks of every general account product and they see exactly where they fall. So, so you mentioned That's something yeah, fantastic. You mentioned five areas of, of suitability. Talk, tell me what those are. Let's high level uh, that as you're analyzing uh, policies. What are those five areas of suitability? Sure. Um, so the first one is the claims paying readings that people are familiar with from Moody's, Stanford, Poor's, Dustin Phelps, AMBEST. And we suggest that um, People look at policies that are rated um, in the top 10% of all ratings from each of those rating agencies um, for claims paying ratings. Um, so we get to see is a company rated in the top 1%, the top 6%, or the top 18%. And that's an important area. Claims paying rating is an important area of suitability. The next is the premium. And the premium many people are familiar with, that's how much you're paying to the insurance company. And you can compare that premium with every insurance company's premium. And then there are the internal costs. And the internal costs, just like as I said to you, hey, Jason, a typical Vanguard fund, what, what would be the cost of that? And you might say, well, the average fund is 18 basis points. And I said, oh, that's great. And I said, what, what do you think the average rate on people's mortgages? And you would say, no, I think it's about 4%. And then I asked you, what about life insurance? And I said, well, I'd have no idea. <laughs> totally. Nobody has an idea. Right. So what right. you're able to do here is you're, you're able to compare the internal costs of an insurance policy, the policy expense, the premium load, cost of insurance charge against benchmarks of what everyone else in the marketplace offers. Um, the next area is pricing stability, and pricing stability is an algorithm that can determine, can insurance company live with their current costs, or is there pressure to raise those costs? Because we've all heard stories of person buys a policy in 2010, and in 2018, the insurance company comes back and says, 
oh well, we, we really can't live with what with what we sold you. But the red flag was there in 2010. Just mm-hmm. nobody knew how to find the red flag, and now there's research to do that. The next area of suitability is um, the cash value uh, liquidity of the policy. So you can see how does the cash value of my particular policy that I have or that I'm looking at compared to the cash value of everything else in the marketplace. And then the last area of suitability is not what's the illustrated rate on the illustration, but how does the insurance company invest their money? Because that's what drives the success of the actual policy. So those are the five areas that are looked at, and there's not one that's most important. All five are important. So when you're analyzing uh, or having the third party analyze uh, a variety of different policies, they're looking at these five areas, uh, and they're giving you a rating for each of those five areas and allows you to come to a conclusion uh, which policy is most appropriate for what your clients are trying to accomplish. Exactly. So you can look for a company that has A, high ratings, B, low premiums, C, low cost, D, high cash values, if that's important, and a great history of um, great returns on their money. And you're quickly and able to see in a, in a picture, sorry, um, you can see in a picture whether one of those is off kilter and you've got great ratings but high expenses. And the benefit to the client is transparency. A third party is going through this analysis. Uh, it's not the quote unquote insurance salesperson that, that's uh, pitching the product. Exactly. And people whether they're attorneys or accountants, um, wealth managers, family offices, they really become addicted to the data because the next time something's presented, they say, wait a minute, how come you're not talking about costs? And no, Jason, let's let's talk about these costs for a moment um, because it's something that people aren't familiar with. So let's pretend we have the the average 50-year-old in the United States and the average 50-year-old is about to purchase the average you know, $10 million life insurance policy from the average insurance company. That policy will have these internal costs of approximately $6 million on average over the life of the contract. So the person will still have their $10 million death benefit. They'll still have their cash value, but subtracted from that cash value over time will be $6 million. And according to a study in Trust in the States magazine that was published in Trust in the States magazine, mm-hmm. those costs vary by 40% off the mean. That means there's some insurance company that charges $2.4 million more than the $6 million, and there's some other insurance company that charges $2.4 million less than the $6 million. So that's I a think as, that, as the average 50-year-old buying the average $10 million policy, I want the $2.4 million less of expenses. Absolutely. And without this inf- and without this independent research, it's really impossible to find the, the one that saves you $2.4 million off the average or uh, you know, $4.8 million off the off compared to the worst policy in the marketplace. Before we transition to talking about 
you know, our client base and, and how we use uh, insurance for, for the different um, pieces of, of, of our client base. I want to ask you a question about existing policies. Uh, this is kind of uh, over 25 years of observation. I see people buy policies um, and then just set them in the corner, pay the premium, don't do anything with it. Are you telling me that with this analysis and with your help that there's the potential to uncover um, cost savings or even increase premium numbers just by literally going through this review process uh, for in enforced policies? Right, absolutely. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a really quick story of, uh, of one of those reviews. So we had uh, we were introduced to a woman. She was told by her insurance company that on her on her twenty five million dollar policy and by her insurance agent that she needed to keep twelve million dollars in the policy, keep the policy in force you know, forever. And we took the information that we needed. We sent it to in that case Verilytic. Verilytic was able to run the numbers for us and show us that there was another insurance company that offered the same product with the same ratings, and they only charge $7 million in costs. So this person was able to, A, move to a new insurance company through a 1035 tax-free exchange, and they found $5 million of new money that they never knew that they had. And when, when we see those types of results, that helps the, the, the family's wealth manager now has $5 million of new money to invest. A client has five million of some percentage of that five million dollars to spend on new estate planning with their trust and estate attorney. More money to spend on the uh, tax planning with their CPA. And they have another sort of thing to brag about with their with their friends to introduce them to the their trusted professional who who, who utilize this independent research, whether it's their attorney, their accountant, their family office. And I got to believe that that's the single most uh, effective use of this third party research is the analysis of older policies that have just been left on the shelf. One of my biggest uh, peeves in working with with families and advisors is um, families fully well expect to sit down with their investment advisor on a quarterly basis. They fully well expect. Um, to sit down uh, with their tax advisor on a quarterly basis. They don't expect, nor do they uh, frequently engage in sitting down with their insurance advisor. And, and a lot of these policies that we see uh, are seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 years old, and the economics of those policies have never been analyzed, uh, nor have they been analyzed in a third party setting uh, that uh, allows. Uh, the families, the owners, to compare apples to apples. Yeah, you're exactly. The, they're, the most insurance agents sort of run away after the transaction. Yep. And they don't yep. do these reviews. And this is simple. It's not extra work for us because taking the information and the independent third party is, is, is doing the work. But it, it's even more important to do the reviews now because interest rates that underlie the vast majority of insurance policies have fallen from 18% to 2%, which means right. that 
the initial illustration from 10 years ago, that illustration looks nothing like the one that's occurring today. And that's why it's important to look at this. And at the same time, mortality has improved tremendously. For the last 10 years, there have been substantial increases in mortality, which result in lower costs for some people today. Fantastic. And I think the moral of that story is you should have a dedicated review process when you own a significant asset like a $5 million, $10 million, $20 million life insurance policy. So let's transition. Exactly. I want to, I want to, um, our last 10 minutes, I want to hit on um, kind of best practices, thoughts, uses of, of insurance uh, for three different types of clients. Um, I call them our uh, high net worth client or, you know, the, the children of, of some of our um, families and family offices that we work with, uh, young professionals uh, just getting embarked, uh, embarking upon their, uh, their careers, our second uh, type of client that we often run into um, is the entrepreneurial client that has is a business owner running his business, may or may not have had uh, a liquidity event yet, could have one in the future, but has built up a successful uh, business enterprise and has a net worth of, let's call it 10 to 50 million. And then our third uh, uh, pocket of clients that we routinely work with uh, are 50 million in North. I call them family enterprise, uh, family office, hybrid family office uh, clients where they've likely had some type of liquidity event. They have um, they have a great deal of investable assets. They're doing private deals. Uh, they're deploying capital uh, across a, a wide variety of structures. Walk me through each one of those clients. Let's start with the with the second generation family members, young professionals, one to ten million dollars. What are some of the, the best in practice uses of insurance in that segment? So I, I think at that level of wealth, it's most important to have you know, a large portfolio of term insurance because the term insurance is you know, inexpensive and the person typically has many, many years of, of income uh, going forward that they would want to protect if something happened to them or some permanent insurance. But I think the most important thing is the right amount of insurance. The, you know, the, the product type isn't the most important factor. Um, and then we see people using life insurance as a supplemental retirement plan at that level of wealth. So they're maxed out in how much money they can put in their 401k plan. So therefore, instead of buying as much insurance as possible with each premium dollar, they try to buy as little uh, death benefit with each premium dollar so their cash can grow faster without being by those expenses that I had spoken about, about earlier. And they can really make unlimited contributions to that sort of supplemental retirement plan. Um, and, and the next thing that I advise families of that level of wealth is have a lot of disability insurance coverage um, because the, the future stream of income is so large and you never know when there's a car accident or some dread disease. Right. Um, so we really try to help our families with term insurance and disability insurance at, at, at that level. And one of the things at that, that this level that we, that I routinely see and I've seen for 25 plus years is, you know, you talk about that term insurance and replacing uh, the main breadwinner in the family's 
uh, earning capacity, God forbid, if something happened prematurely. Uh, one of the things that I think is oftentimes overlooked, and we talked about this in our uh, prep call, is is um, if you have one of the family members staying at home with, with the children, um, that you need to have some, I always tell clients, you have to have some level of term insurance on the stay-at-home parent, uh, because if, um, if, God forbid, something happened to the stay-at-home parent, now the surviving parent who's working probably can't work 80 hour weeks uh anymore probably isn't going to get the the big huge bonus every year because they're going to have to spend more time focusing on on the children probably needs one if not uh two uh, uh support staff in the house to help with the raising of the children if if they're in uh if they're still in the office for long hours and that all costs significant amounts of money uh, so uh, we routinely suggest to, to families to also ensure the stay-at-home parent uh, to protect the ongoing capacity of, of, um, of uh, building up uh, wealth for inside of that family unit. God forbid if something were to happen. Right. So let's exactly. Do, that's let, a great. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's often overlooked. Uh, probably well in excess of. Uh, 70, 80 percent uh, of the uh, young entrepreneurial families or or um, or, fam- or children of the family offices that we're working for, they've got one insured, but not the other. Um, let's transition into our entrepreneurial client base. Uh, again, 10 to 50 million dollars uh, in this client base probably haven't had a liquidity event. Uh, they're building up that business, maybe been doing it for 20, 30 years, the business is a vast majority of the wealth. Maybe they have a little bit of retirement uh, as they've uh, become successful and implemented uh, retirement uh, strategies. But uh, from the vast majority of the clients in this spectrum, uh, the wealth is tied up in that family business. What are, what are some of the best practices and uses you find uh, in these scenarios? So we see people, you know, considering now that the lifetime exemption amount will probably be falling because of, you know, the debt the government has built up from, you know, the pandemic and from prior to the pandemic. So uh, that number is uh, for a married couple, it's, you know, $20 million exemption indexed for inflation. And Jason, where do you think that number might uh, fall to? (laughs) I would. So I tell every one of my clients, that it's going to fall. Uh, there is going to be a Democrat uh, in office as the president, and there's going to be Democrat-controlled uh, Congress, both House and Senate, at some point in time, whether it's next year, whether it's five years from now, whether it's nine years from now, we know that the pendulum swings back and forth. And with everything that you just mentioned, I would not be surprised. And with you know, kind of this outcry of of the wealthier people are getting wealthier. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we went back to uh, 3.5 million dollars. I wouldn't be surprised if we had a graduated rate structure for the estate tax again, starting at 40 percent and getting as high as 60 percent. That would not surprise me at all. So I, I think what you're saying, Jason, is those who are exempt from the estate tax right now, many of them won't be exempt 
in the future. Yep. And whether it's whether it's January, whether it's four years from now, whether it's 2026 when the 2017 Tax Act uh, drops back, or whether it's you know at, at some other election uh, moving forward. The one thing I am certain of is that that the the state tax um, the the folks that are going to be subject to estate taxes uh, are going to be more in the future than they are right now. Exactly. Um, and the next thing that we see in that planning area is just to, for business owners and entrepreneurs, just to make sure that they have, you know, if there's a key person in the firm, that there's key person life insurance, which is usually, you know, inexpensive term insurance and key person disability insurance in case something happens, the value of that business is protected. And then we see sometimes, you know, non-qualified deferred compensation uh, arrangements for businesses to shelter money from taxes or to help them uh, retain that they have, help them build up this large business. Yeah. How about um, <clears throat> funding mechanisms for business partners? Um, how often do you see insurance using being used for that? Um, we see it, we see it frequently from the people who who are familiar with uh, the strategies. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always nice in a competitive environment where employees can you know, leave, you know they they can leave on the elevator any day. Um, so it's always interesting to see companies that offer better benefit plans to keep the the better people. Got it. So our uh, the third group of clients that we routinely are working with. Um, are still very much entrepreneurial. They might have had a liquidity event or two, uh, and let's call the, the range 50 million, 100 million plus. Uh, and this is going to be a two-part question. What do you see there? Uh, and then the second piece of it, with some of the proposals that we're seeing for income taxes, um, how important will uh, life insurance become in the future to assist families in mitigating their income tax liability. So tell me what you're seeing, and then let's talk about the tax issue. Right. So so we're seeing people at that level do you know, significant estate planning, and for the assets that they can't you know plan away, uh, they're using you know lower they're they're using survivorship insurance, which is less expensive than single life insurance because the tax isn't due at the first death. So the cost of the product is less expensive because two occurrences have to happen. You know, the one spouse can pass away tomorrow, but the other spouse still have to wait until they're 90 uh, or 95, what have you. So that's a, a low cost way of paying the state taxes at sort of pennies on the dollar. Um, and and then to answer your sort of your income tax question, you know, just like a corporation has a tax blocker in the terms of in terms of a pension plan where they can invest for the employees and uh, not have anyone pay taxes on the gains, uh, there's uh, PPLI or private placement life insurance is a tax blocker that's used by ultra high net worth individuals and families. So that when they're when the, this type of policy is properly designed, it's not being purchased for life insurance purposes. It's really being purchased for uh, the estate excuse me the income tax mitigation on either conventional investments or alternative investments, hedge funds, private equity, 
things like that. So we're just seeing more and more of that among you know, ultra high net worth individuals and families. And I think my experience is that the industry is starting to catch up with the demand and that um, you're now, it's much easier now to have uh, a wide variety of private equity and hedge fund type investments by the same managers that you can go to directly and just have in your personal account. You now can have um, have those managers managing assets inside of your insurance policy, uh, and those uh, frequently families, the ultra high net families, are looking to put the inefficient asset classes in inside of those PPL uh, products. I've seen that quite frequently uh, over the course of uh, the, the years. The the industry is getting just more efficient with regards to that. Talk to me about you know, if, well, we have big ifs uh, floating around, if, the, um, if the, the capital gains tax rate goes to uh, 39.6%, if the ordinary income tax uh, rate ekes up to 39.6%, how do those products, those PPLs, how do they work? How do they mitigate those taxes? And how do, how do clients uh, have access to the funds inside of those policies in a tax efficient manner? Give me the Give me the one minute overview uh, on PPL. Sure. So I think the easiest way to think of it is, you know, when when we were young, we gave a dollar to the insurance company and we said, look, if something happens to me, I want to buy as much insurance as possible uh, for each insurance dollar. And with PPLI, it's sort of the exact opposite. Saying to the insurance company, I want to give you a million dollars a year or two million or three million or five million. I don't want to buy as I don't want to buy hundreds of millions of dollars of coverage. I want to buy very very little coverage, and that enables the cash that we've deposited at the insurance company that get that then is invested in the different types of funds that you had mentioned to grow with without tax, really without friction, other than those cost of insurance charges. So I was working with someone this morning, so I still have their work up on my on my screen, but essentially the person deposited you know, $7.5 million in a private placement insurance contract. And at some you know, conservative rate of growth over the next 20 years, it had gains of approximately $16 million. And you know, if I asked you quickly, what do you think the tax was, would have been on that $16 million, what would be your best guess? Uh, I would go with 4 to $6 million. Right. So here, that person, instead of paying the four or six million dollars in tax, they incurred a two million dollar charge for cost of insurance charges, policy expenses, and premium loads that we discussed earlier. And mm-hmm. in addition, they have a you know a death benefit of you know twenty five million dollars. So you can see that um, they've been able to a buy significant amounts of insurance in case something happens to them. But within the tax code, they're able to have money grow in other investments uh, without paying tax as long as the product is properly designed and funded and administered. So the the growth of the assets that are in the insurance wrapper, um, those assets uh, are free from income taxes as they grow. So if they spin off, if I have a hedge fund portfolio with seven and a half million dollars and it spins off 
ordinary income and capital gains each year, I'm not paying income taxes on it. The policy is not paying income taxes on it. It's growing, in essence, in a wrapper income tax free. Is that correct? Correct. And then the taxes are incurred if the person says, I want to cancel this and get out of the contract. And then they would pay you know, ordinary income tax on the gain. Or they could remove the gains through a tax-free loan or a tax-free withdrawal as long as the policy remained in force forever. Under current law, there's no tax. So when you say forever, um, in, as long as that policy is in place, when the owner of it or the insured of it um, passes, you aren't going to pay any income taxes on the amount you uh, took out as a loan. What happens when you pass? Are there any income taxes at that point? There are no income taxes at that point unless you've allowed that policy to lapse with that Got it. loan. So the key, the key uh, part of planning and using uh, PPL is tax-free buildup inside the policy, access to that tax-free uh, buildup via the loans, but you got to keep the policy in place and you have to you have to pass with it in place, uh, and then the death benefit is paid at that point in time, income tax free. Right. And just like you said before, just like your investment plan that needs to be reviewed every quarter, you need to review this as an investment oriented insurance, it needs to be reviewed every quarter. Fantastic. Well, we have run up against our, our time here, but I wanted to thank you, uh, Stephen, for uh, the very much uh, thoughtful insight. Uh, we certainly covered a lot of ground here. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Stephen, uh, check out his website at www.kbfinancialcompanies.com or send us an email at familyoffice at bostonprivate.com and we'll make sure we'll forward it uh, on to Stephen and uh, get him connected with you. I'd also recommend that you check out our website where you can find numerous resources, sign up for our family office newsletter, get this podcast, and much more in your inbox. That website is bostonprivate.com backslash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Thank you again to Stephen uh, for joining us today and for the insightful information. Uh, we look forward to uh, uh, hearing from you again soon. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein.
All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, and may lose value.